we tell stories that engage, inspire, and have a lasting impact? How do we turn thoughts and ideas into effective and authentic storytelling? How can we use stories to make a difference in our work, lives, and communities? I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and together we'll explore what it means to tell stories with heart. Hello, and welcome back to the Storytelling with Heart podcast. I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and with me today is Steve Mesler. Steve Mesler is an Olympic gold medalist and a three-time Olympian in the sport of bobsled and a previous member of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Board of Directors. Steve is also the co-founder of the nonprofit education organization Classroom Champions, a nonprofit which provides students with social and emotional learning curriculum and mentorship with help from hundreds of Olympians, Paralympians, and professional athletes. An internationally recognized leader in the intersecting worlds of sport, education, and business, Steve is also a friend and a client of mine. We work together on a number of storytelling projects, notably his email newsletter, which Steve has been publishing every two weeks for the past two years and still going strong. Steve always inspires me with his unique take on things and his fervent energy as he strives to get better in all ways and help others do the same. He's got tons of good stories and insight to share, so I am very excited to have him join us on the podcast today. Welcome, Steve. It's great to be here. That was quite the intro. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I feel like I should just leave now. That's me. Those are all those awesome sounding things, and I'm going to go now. (laughs) I mean, when you start with, oh, he's an Olympic gold medalist, I mean, we could kind of just do a mic drop. There. Yeah, there's a, there's a like bobsled pun in there if it's all downhill after that kind of thing, but we won't <laughs> go there. We won't use that one. <laughs> well, Steve, I'm I'm excited to chat with you today. Um, and actually, that kind of that that bobsled comment is, I think, a good place to start um, because I think lots of kids dream of going to the Olympics, of winning a gold medal, of becoming this kind of athlete, but probably not too many dream of becoming a bobsledder in particular. (laughs) So I'm wondering if maybe you can tell me about how that came to be. Yeah. I mean, I was one of them that didn't, (laughs) that didn't dream of being a, becoming a bobsledder. Um, but before I jump into that, just it's, this is awesome. I'm excited to do this with you and I'm excited to to hang out and chat and talk through all these things. Um, We do this, we spend plenty of time under the cover of darkness together talking about these things. So um, now to get to share some of your, I mean, I'm excited to talk to you about some of these things too and pick your brain in front of everybody. So um, amazing. I look, I was, yeah, I was one of those kids who dreamt of going to the Olympics, who wanted to be a big time athlete and looked up to athletes and just thought it was amazing. Growing up in Buffalo, we had the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres. And my parents, I was fortunate enough as my parents were teachers and they exposed me to to both of those teams all the time in person and just the crowds and, and all of the wonderful things that sports brings us together to do. So when it comes to thinking about how I got into bobsled, people, when I feel people, I came from Buffalo, they're like, oh, well, that makes sense. It, it does not make sense to come from Buffalo and <laughs> wanted to be a bobsledder. Uh, and even more so, I was at University of Florida when the bug got put in my ear as a track athlete down there. And I was a track athlete um, down in Florida on scholarship at the time. But really, I got into bobsled because I had nowhere else to go. <clears throat> I was, I was a, you know, fledgling track athlete at Florida after being a national champion. I was kind of, I was doing the grind and I was training really hard and I was doing all the things while going to school and it just never really would come together for me. I'd get hurt at the end of the season every year. And that was really, it was hard. It was hard. And I would find myself in a boot. It was kind of my ankle had a, had a bunch of injuries and then would heal up a few months later and I'd get to training and then competition, just kidding. My body couldn't handle some of the pounding and during some of the competition. And, and then I, you know, tore my elbow and right after I got tossed out of the training center and mm-hmm. or sorry, the training room, um, at university of Florida. And that was a big moment for me. I was literally there like, look, you're just, you're taking up too much time and you're not producing. You're not allowed to be in here anymore. Uh, and three weeks later I tore my elbow. So clearly I needed to be in there again. 
much, much to their dismay, I think probably I would assume. And, um, and it was hard. So when I, after I finished my track career at Florida, I, I did the thing that most athletes do, which is, okay, am I done yet? I, I, can't, I just wasn't willing to be done. I wasn't willing to think that I peaked when I was 17. That was a thought going through my head was literally, mm-hmm. I don't want to think I peaked when I was 17. And I had a guy named Jerry Clayton, who was a coach of mine who recruited me to Florida, actually, who had since moved on, who put the bug in my ear. I compared me to a guy named Rob Olson, who went to the 1998 Olympics. I was in the middle of my career at Florida and compared me as an athlete. And I just laughed it off. And next so thing he's I comparing do, I was, you to this, to this bobsled athlete. And at the time you're like, okay, whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm a track athlete in Florida coach. Like you got that one from track to bobsled. Cool. But like, that's not me, you know, two, two and a half years later, I'm sitting <laughs> on that couch and I emailed the Olympic committee and that's how I got to bobsledding. It wasn't about bobsledding. It wasn't about dreaming to bobsled. It was about the Olympic dream and just finding mm-hmm. a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I imagine before you got to that moment, uh, it it must have been so disheartening to think, is this over? You know, and then what? Oh, it was brutal. It was brutal just to see my watch my sport career just go down the drain and, um, you know, start to move on to grad school. And I was I was getting my mind ready to to move on and do other things. Um, And I mean, I'm so glad that I didn't like I'm so glad that I like took a shot in the dark and emailed the Olympic committee and said, I'm this big, the strongest bass. I was once told I could do this. What do you mm-hmm. think? And I got an email back from a guy named Greg Sand at USA Bobsled the next day. And they said I could, um, but it was, yeah, it was pretty disheartening. It was, it was one of those moments. It was sitting on the couch in Gainesville in late August of 2000 with my arm in a sling, two days out of surgery, typing that email was like probably the most consequential day of my life. I don't know if importance the right, the wrong word, right? Like, I mean, my, my children mm-hmm. have been born. I am, you know, <clears throat> won a gold medal. My, you know, got married. My kids have been born. Those, those were pretty, pretty important and special days. <laughs> but if I didn't take that, if I didn't have the the gall or the ego or whatever it is to think maybe I can do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably the most consequential day of my life was that, that day in late August. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then as you, as you got into bobsled then as you were given that opportunity to start training um what was that like uh, from that same perspective of um of adapting and and changing and evolving because you know i mean we could talk about your olympic stories all day but where i'm kind of going with this is that you've had to pivot at multiple points in your life and sort of rewrite your own story, enter into new chapters. And um, there's a couple of different aspects to your overall story in that, that I'd, I'd like to take a closer look at. But so from, from that kind of perspective, then you're, you've thought, okay, I'm a track athlete. This is what I'm doing. This is my, this is my path. Um, and then you start training in bobsled. So then what happens? Yeah. It's uh, well, you said something interesting there that I'll, that I'll push back on which is that you had to, like, I have had a lot of pivot points in my life and to rewrite my own story. And I don't think, I don't see it as rewriting my own story. I, I see it as just redirecting. And then, mm-hmm. and then the story kept going. So um, I wouldn't have known that when I started bobsledding, I'd go to three Olympics and, and win a gold medal. It would have been a nice story to, to write. It's a great mm-hmm. story to write about afterwards. Um, but I had to, I had to redirect it. I think for me, it was, I had to a whole bunch of times in my life, just completely rethink think the way I was looking, reframe my perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's something that I like, I feel like I've gotten really good at Mm -hmm. lately. Um, I apply that on a regular basis now. And it's something that, look, I was injured for five years in a row in track and field. Five years. I was senior year of high school. I'd signed, I was national champion, signed my letter of intent to Florida, got hurt, tore my hamstring, then three years in a row in an ankle. And then a fourth year of of an elbow. So it was five years in a row. I didn't finish my season in track. And the only way I was going to be able to do something else was completely just change the way I was thinking about it. And as a track athlete or as an athlete in general, mm-hmm. you, you kind of treat yourself, you're treated like a car. And if you hear a little dink in your car, you are trained to go to the garage or go to someplace to get that little dink fixed or, fixed or else it becomes a big dink and your engine drops out. So as an athlete, you get to do that too, where you feel a little hamstring thing and you go to the training room, you feel this, you go to the training room. And I was, so then you train yourself to look for those things. So you look for the problems 
and I was looking for the problems. And I remember the like another super consequential day in my life was just a couple of months after, maybe a month and a half after the day that I emailed the bobsled, uh, the Olympic committee and the bobsled team was I was out of the track at Florida. And I really decided that, realized that one of the things I need to do is just not get hurt anymore, mm-hmm. which is a wild concept to just decide to not get hurt anymore. And uh, I was like, well, I'm just going to try this because what I clearly what I've been doing for the last five years hasn't been working. So I'm just right. not going to hurt anymore, which means if I feel a little dink, what am I, I going to do? Whatever. I'm just going to blow right through it. I'm just going to decide it's not going to turn into a big dink and my engine's not going <laughs> to drop out. And I remember sprinting. It was like dusk. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was working multiple jobs at that point. It was the end of the day. And I was warmed up. I had my big, this big RoboCop style looking brace on my elbow. And I took a sprint and, you know, I was doing like, I think maybe like six by 50 meter sprints, which is a long way for a bobsledder. Uh, but I wasn't quite a bobsledder yet. So it was, it was okay for me. And I took a few sprints and I felt my hamstring. I remember clearly feeling my hamstring and I turned my right shoulder and I started, took two steps towards the training room. A, the training room was closed because of the evening. B, I'm not on the team anymore. And C, I said, I'm just not going to be hurt anymore. So admitting I'm hurt means I'm hurt. So I'm just going to go back and I'm going to do another one. And I did another sprint and I was okay. I did another sprint. I was okay. And I did another sprint. I was okay. And then I following that I spent nine years. I didn't miss one race. I went to three games and did all the things I did. And Mm -hmm. I gave a talk at the national strength and conditioning associations. I keynoted their conference in June of 2010. Uh, one of the, the the current president of the of their board at the time had helped me with some nutrition work. Um, a good friend of ours, John Berardi, and then uh, and then uh, John Hoffman down at UCF uh, were by like two two nutrition guys, and he invited me down and speak. And I spoke and I told my story about being injured. And Brian Scheimer, who was a teammate on the 2002 team, and then my head coach by 2010 came up from Naples, Florida, to watch the talk in Orlando. And I gave this talk, and he came up to me afterwards, said I had no idea. I had no idea you spent five years hurt. I had no idea you were this fragile athlete in college because when you showed up, you were the Iron Man for 10 years. So right. yeah, that was the point. <clears throat> I didn't right. want to show that vulnerability. I didn't want anybody to know because in bobsled, if you show vulnerability, the sharks will get you. So mm-hmm. for me, it was about changing that. And then since then, I've been able to just, re- I mean, most recently, I've you know, run a nonprofit and I'm the CEO of it, which means majority of overwhelming majority of my job is to support my team and raise money. That's my job. And I hated fundraising, hated it. Spent 10 years running class and champions, hating fundraising, um, <laughs> which sucks to have a majority, have a bulk of your job raising, you know, that you know, is to raise funds and you don't like it. And literally like a year and a half ago, I just said to my wife, I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of not liking fundraising. I'm going to like it now. She's like, what do you mean? Like, I'm just going to like it now. I'm just going to decide I'm going to like it. It's my choice. It's like it's my brain. It's my thoughts. It's my mm-hmm. feelings. I'm going to choose to like fundraising, and I do now. And it's not masking it. It's not you know BSing myself. Uh, it's not just covering up something. No, no. I like it now. I found I found the ways and found the things and found the reasons to like it, including. I have an opportunity. We do good work at Classroom Champions. If you, if I believe we do good work, if we can help kids, if we can help kids have this kind of mindset, then we do good work, which means that people who donate, they're choosing to do that themselves, free will. And they just want their money to go to someplace that's going to help them make a difference. Well, I feel like we're making a difference. Therefore, I get to help people by taking their money and doing something positive with it and giving yeah. them a tax receipt while they're at it. Um and such you know, we- a it's such an important reframe, I think, because uh, that will will hopefully resonate with with listeners as well. Because I know for many people, um, particularly if you are an you know an independent professional, maybe you're a coach yourself, or maybe you are also running a an organization or small business, they don't like to sell. Mm-hmm. They don't like to, the idea of marketing is intimidating or they sort of associate it with, you know, kind of old school skeezy tactics. Um, it, for some, it may be writing as well. They want to communicate better, but they struggle with the actual act of writing. Maybe it feels like a slog for them. Maybe yeah. it's public speaking. There are so many things where we think 
I should do this. I want to do this, but I don't want to to do it the way I've been taught to do it, or I just, or I don't like it, or it doesn't feel good for me. So I want to avoid it. Yeah. I mean, where are you in that right now? Um, I mean, I've definitely shifted my own view of those things too. You know, I, I, it's funny, even with writing. So when I worked, um, back in, in agencies, Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for a while in public relations. I worked in digital marketing and there was a time where I didn't consider myself a writer. I was in client service and strategy. And even though I knew I could write and had the skills to write to me, being a writer was, um, this is going to sound so funny, <laughs> but it, it seemed, I don't know, like, uh, oh, whatever. You're just a writer, like, like a craftsman person, right. As opposed to maybe a thinker. Um, and now I call myself a storyteller and I'm, I'm happy to take on different, um, sort of titles and, and characteristics for that. But I, so much of what I do is writing, um, you know, either on for myself or on other people's behalf. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a collaborative process. Part of it's editing. There's a kind of translation involved and there is certainly thinking and strategizing, but there's also getting words on a page, um, and so there just came a time as well where I shifted how I thought about being a writer from something that was, I don't know, not as not like not as serious or something yeah. Yeah. to something that is really a great way of sharing my gifts and helping other people really do what they what they are here to do in the world. Yeah. And, and taking your, taking yourself seriously enough and having enough confidence in what you do to be able to, like, I know that game. Cause you know, so far, so many, so many people who start their own businesses or, or, you know, whether they are sole proprietors, sole proprietors, or they're growing something, the, the, what's the term and, you know, it's fake it. So you make it. And it's really hard to tell when you've made it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Have you made it when you retire? Has you made it when you have financial security? Have you made it? It's really the like the like made it like the fake it part's easy to understand what that means, but like the fake the, the make make it part is super vague. So I think it's yeah. becomes a choice. Yeah, I mean it's like that's I'm um, thinking thinking about it as we go here, but um it's super vague. And I think I realized the the bobsled thing could have been a fluke the like not getting injured thing could have been a fluke and i so i never really thought of it as a like full mindset shift and it was like because i just thought about it differently t- until towards the end of my career until after my career maybe it's like huh how did i get in a bobsled huh yeah i mean i just like decided that i was not going to let the thing that was interrupting me before do it and then and now i'm able to do that more and more and more the flywheel has kind of gotten a lot smoother for me to understand. Um, and to, so to me, like when it is, is like, what is, what is making it mean? It's feeling at home and confident in what you're doing period. Like when you feel like you've moved from the faking it part and you're like, Oh yeah, I'm actually pretty good at this. And, and it doesn't mean that you're arrogant about it. It doesn't mean you're cocky. It doesn't mean you, doesn't mean you know it all <laughs> like by, okay. by anything. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just slightly beyond sophomore and I think <laughs> that's the, like, that's the biggest thing and yeah. the fundraising change we're going to, you know, classroom champions will bring in probably two and a half times, um, the resources this year, the financial resources this year than we, than we ever have before, which, you know, for us means the organization will bring in, you know, probably over $5 million, which means we're going to be able to help a lot more kids and to help a lot more teachers and school districts, um, implement social emotional learning and mentorship programs and curriculum. Um, which is exciting. And then just from a, yeah, from a personal standpoint, it's just nice. It's, I went from fundraising that should have been more of my job to, you know, probably was 30% of my time and I hated it. Now it's 80% of my time and I love it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm spending more time because I like it because I decided that I liked it. And I've had, mm-hmm. I've had the conversation with the small business owners who, or like, especially the, the folks in the fitness industry, right. Cause we're, yeah. To your what you said earlier, right? I mean, we, uh, you know, it sounds sleazy. Did I'm like, do you believe you do good work? Yeah. Oh, yes. Do you think people 
should listen to you over some schmuck over there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you don't have to compare yourself to John Berardi or you don't have to compare yourself to, you know, those, you know, these other people who most people don't have access to those folks anyway. You can compare yourself to yourself and maybe other folks who maybe, you know, your potential mm-hmm. clients have access to. And if you mm-hmm. feel good about that, then cool, then you should be excited. Like what you get to do for people. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I definitely feel that way as well in my, in my life, um, in, in my business in terms of selling and I, because ultimately I know I'm not trying to get anybody to do something that they don't want to do or isn't for them. If they're not right for me, I'm not right for them. Then, then great. Then, then we know that then we're not a match. If we are a match, then awesome. We have done something good for, for both of us in, in partnering up. Yeah. I mean, you know, it gives you the, for me, it gives me the freedom to, to not be like heartbroken when a school district doesn't want to bring classroom champions in. Great. I mean, if you, if this is not your Ballywick, if you don't think that this kind of stuff is going to help your kids, guess what? It's probably not. It's probably not. So I'm fine with that rejection. Like that is that if, if, um, yeah, that, those are not the kinds of things that I get disappointed about anymore even though it's super easy. I mean, I was on the, I was on the phone with somebody who works with us just this morning on my, my drive back from downtown. Um, and they kind of suffered their first, their first loss. Mm. And, uh, you know, they've, they've had a little bit of a winning streak. They're, they're relatively new. Um, mm. and they suffered their first loss. And I think that's great. Would mm. we have, you know, would I've liked for us to, to win that one? And we, and maybe we still can. Um, but it's, what what advice did you give them or what what was your response to that um it was a, i mean it was a mix of recognize of for them to like recognize the situation they're walking into and it's okay to ask for help um because maybe they were in a situation that it might have been a little bit they, they probably could use a little bit of help um they might not have been quite ready for that situation um but also that ultimately if if it fell that flat it was never going to happen anyway. There right. was really, there was really, you know, very, very little chance that it could have succeeded. So, you know, find the reasons why they say that they didn't want it, write those down, learn from those, but then ultimately like just be ready to move on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. I mean, there's just so much here that that I could continue to kind of unpack and, and dig into, but to just sort of circle back to the, your kind of origin story. Mm-hmm. It sounds like when you look back on your life and the various um the wins and the also the the transitions, that that kind of reframing and mindset piece has been a like a real guiding force in getting you to where you are today. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Hey, look, I think that I feel fortunate that I, you know, come from where I come from. I feel fortunate that I am in the position that I'm in, um, and not necessarily just like the role that I'm in, but the, you know, the fact that like I grew up in a grew up with two educated, well-educated parents. Um, you know, plenty of you know, plenty of like upper, you know, middle class, upper middle class privilege, um, athletic, all all of those kinds of things. Um, but ultimately, I'm competing, you know, quote unquote in life, we're competing against plenty of people who are just as able, just mm-hmm. as able. And it, if everybody's just as able, then it really only comes down to the willing. And how willing are you to think, you know, in different ways, if you're running against the, you know, the old definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results, that kind of thing. And that's, I, you know, again, I was lucky and fortunate enough to, to have that wherewithal when I was sitting on that couch at 20 some odd, you know, you know, 21, 22 years old. Um, but I a hundred percent, like the, the, the way that I've gotten here to work to the things I get to do now are great. I love the things I get to do now, but it's, it really has happened because I've been able to shift the way that I approach things and think of things and, and look inside myself and sport gave me a lot of that Mm -hmm. sport doesn't care (laughs) whether you, whether you want to push the bobsled fast, unless you are in the gym doing the things and you, unless you're studying and and getting your angles, right. You will not. It is a 
450-pound object. It doesn't move on its own. (laughs) So (laughs) sport is unforgiving of the wrong mindset and the wrong motions and the wrong things. And that's like why I love, you know, I love my kids, you know, our our daughters, as, as you know, Brett is in all kinds of sports. I mean, gymnastics and soccer and, 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 you know, and skiing and all these things. Um, because I really want to give her that gift of like, look, you, you can get down the hill. That's plenty mm-hmm. of ways to do it and mm-hmm. figure it out. So yeah. It, but um, you know, one of the things I love about how you talk about this too, is that it's not just like one principle and you're done that you're still learning at it. Like the story you told about, uh, fundraising, you know, importantly, there was also, pretty big chunk of time there um, that you really thought you didn't like it. It didn't happen immediately. It takes time for us to, to even kind of notice, Oh, where, you know, what's this thing here that I'm struggling with? And Oh, Mm -hmm. is this something where a reframe could help? Am I, you know, ready, (laughs) willing, able to make that reframe or that mental adjustment now it's a, it's an ongoing process as we continue to move through life, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a self-awareness thing, right? It is, it is. Um, and the best analogy I have, like, look, I'm probably a lot of your listeners work out. Um, and, um, I really started noticing this when I started distance running. And again, like, remember I became the best in the world at running for five seconds and sitting for a minute. So distance running, things like that don't come natural to me. Um, they're generally pretty painful even today that I run relatively often. It's still hard for me to go and do it. Um, but what I've really noticed is if I'm stressed and if I like think about like a person on the board of the U.S. Olympic Committee that I didn't like or we had a conflict recently, if I'm out, on a, out for a 5K run and I start thinking about that person, my energy gets sapped. Now, have you, have you experienced that before, like working out if your mind goes to the, to a negative place that you feel less energy and you're less strong? Well, that- I'll tell you, I started... I mean, I start. I got into boxing because of something bad that happened in my life, and I had a lot of anger that I needed to release. And so sometimes when I was boxing, I would channel that anger, that hurt, that rage into the bag. That worked think- to a point. After that, it was like, you know what? This is causing me more. Um, this is draining my energy. It's causing me to burn more energy than I need to. So I shifted and started, um, I started moving in general and particular in boxing more from a place of joy and deliberately practicing to be, um, you know, more, um, yeah, just tapping more into lightness and joy. Often if I'm doing uh, certain combos or routines that are a bit rote, I will uh, imagine myself on a beach or, you know, go to my happy place. Like that's where I exercise from today. Yeah. No, I mean, well, I think that's, and it's a great distinction. I think, uh, sports that are and exercise movements that are aggression related, pushing a bobsled squatting. When I would back squat, I would imagine my competition. I would imagine those mm-hmm. folks who would be me. And I would, I would do that boxing, clearly aggression. Great. Um, but when it comes to like our day-to-day lives, aggression, like yelling at somebody great. Yeah. I mean, sure. You can accomplish the yelling through the negative, but on the distance run, that's a long period of time and the the aggression would, could last for a moment going up a hill but then it saps the energy so for me i can real i can literally feel it if i if i let my brain so i'm i've gotten into the habit now of like as soon as my brain goes one direction and i feel i can feel my stomach i can feel my energy levels i'll redirect my brain and i'll start to think about something else which is hard to, as we all know it's hard to do if your brain starts going one direction it's hard to redirect it so i use exercise to to practice that um in that way. But then how do you bring that into like your day-to-day practice and, um, and all that? Yeah, and, I think and, and actually, Steve, the, it, I think yeah. this is a great segue a, a bit to, to some of the writing and stuff too, because mm-hmm. I'm a, a big proponent of people then focusing their, like, their thinking towards what is the thing that you want to talk about, that you want to share that you want to be better? What is the idea you are noodling on? You know, that that's something that is in you to express. Because I really believe that so many people, and this goes for leaders of all kinds, we spend too much time with our brains kind of 
in the muck. We're looking at stuff on social media. Maybe we're ruminating about things that happen or, you know, like you mentioned, oh, there was a conflict or there's somebody I don't like, or someone said something I don't like. Um, And how do we then channel our time, like our, our thoughts and our attention towards the things that are more productive or meaningful in our lives, the things we want to share. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, I, th- I think the writing and before we get into the writing though, I could say the people who I look up to the most that are, are leaders that are six, that, you know, I would classify as successful, um, None of them, as we we're talking about this now, as I was like going through and cataloging in my head, none of them have I can I remember hearing them talk negatively or complain about something or someone for more than short bursts of time. Bursts of time, mm. they don't get stuck in the rumination. They have learned to do that, and I think if there's one thing that like that's I've learned taken away from those people, and note you notice those things. You spend enough time with people like that, you notice that kind of as a whole, there are some of these skills that go across successful people. And one of those is don't get stuck on the negative people and have enough self-awareness that you are getting stuck in the moment, have enough self-awareness that it's, oh, by the way, it's your call. Like it's your brain's mm-hmm. call. That's the, that's why I t- talk to Brett all the time. My daughter all the time, we've really gotten into what she can control. Mm-hmm. And if she's, you know, this or that, I say like, well, can you control that? And she said, no. Said, And then we move on. And because, I mean, kids are blank slates, right? So they only know what they only like, literally only know what's there in front of them. Um, And when it comes to like writing for me, I think the block for me for a long time, I wanted to write for a long time, as you know, Um, I wanted to get into it and I wanted to do it. I felt, I felt like I had decent ideas. I, people had always, you know, after I won my medal, like you're going to write a book. And I never felt like I was, did not feel like I had accomplished enough to write a book. Um, Winning gold medal is just one thing. It's, and I was really good at running fast and sliding down mountains. That'd be a great story. But, uh, but I want, if I'm going to write a book, I want it to be useful for people. I want them to be able to, to listen to the stories, but also have concrete takeaways. I want to be able to, I wanted to be able to have enough experiences from sport to business and philanthropy to other things to, to be able to tell those things. But over the last couple of years, when you and I started working together and I started writing, I think the block for me was always, well, I'm just, I'm not that good of a writer and not necessarily in a fixed mindset where I just need to change it and decide I'm going to be a good writer. Um, I didn't have time. It wasn't a priority enough for me to mm-hmm. become a good writer. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the block for me was writing is one of those things where people have this perspective that it has to be pure and you are doing it soup to nuts. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's the, that's the perspective I quite often had. And I think what I realized was that's that's not really the case. Um, the, the the concept of writing for me is to share ideas. So mm-hmm. if I have a solid idea, just because I may not be able to be like either concise enough or crisp enough or grammatically correct enough to share that idea, doesn't mean the idea was bad. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and. It's- Clearly not, <laughs> uh, you know, clearly, clearly not. I, you know, everybody could agree just because you can't do that. And I think there's a conflation between, and I see that I saw this on the board of directors, of the U S Olympic and Paralympic committee, an athlete would come in and have an idea or an issue or a challenge. And athletes get brought into places to speak because they're passionate individuals and they get paid tens of thousands of dollars because they're passionate. They could tell stories and they can bring passion. They can move people. But in a boardroom environment, passion and emotion are negative traits. So when you're in a boardroom that is overseeing, you know, an organization that is three, four hundred million dollars a year, um, um, passion equals emotion. Emotion equals irrationality. Irrationality becomes poor decision making, and you can't have poor decision making in a boardroom like that. <laughs> which I say with a, with a, which I say with a grin because I've seen and been a part of and witnessed <laughs> plenty of bad decisions. Um, but I think that ultimately what got lost was the athlete's idea was really good. Mm-hmm. They had something very, very valuable to say that that would help the organization and help athletes or help something, whatever it is they were trying to do. But their messaging was too passionate. Therefore, it got shut down or ignored in, in a boardroom environment. Transfer that over to writing where just because somebody isn't able to, to write it in a 400 or 500 word 
you know, thing that would get the right amount of hits on medium or whatever it is, doesn't mean that's bad. So just like the athlete needs coaching to help them understand their audience, just like the people listening in the boardroom, for the love of God, the people in the boardroom need coaching to understand how to listen to a passionate athlete, not to dismiss the ideas. Well, on the writing side, people like me need some help being a little bit shorter, being a little more concise. And that for me is where like you and I started really thriving and where I let myself go of saying, I got to be great at the idea ideation. I got to be great at putting it down on paper. I got to be great at tightening it up and I got to be great at getting it out there. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. no, I'm not yeah, gonna, yeah. I'm not gonna. So you and I, so yeah. that's, you know, it's been six months yeah. transfer that leadership too. It's, when you happen. spell it all out, it, it really, it's, you know, it's funny because it, it's such a great point that th- these are different sets of skills and thinking and ideating, having a unique point of view, having something to say worth saying is not connected to the skill of writing. They're, they're two separate things, Very. not to mention the, just the, the time. And, you know, you said priority earlier of like, well, you could get better at, at something. I, Phil Knight, when he wrote his um, his memoir, he went to mm-hmm. a writing class and like w- basically went back to, to school for it. But vast amounts of authors use ghostwriters, if not, you know, um, kind of additional editors or, or writers and partners. And I used to look down on that stuff. Like, oh, mm-hmm. they got a ghostwriter. Like they can't write it themselves. No, they can't write it themselves because they're busy or they're just not good at writing. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean that their ideas aren't worth being, being shared with people. And, and I think before it happened in writing for me, it happened in leadership, which was, um, you know, and David Epps, Dave Epstein, a good friend of mine, um, New York times bestselling writer wrote the sports gene and range his book range, uh, where it was, you know, he's really talking about that in a world where everybody's getting hyper, hyper specialized that the people who are some of the people who are most successful, are still broad. They still have a wide range of skills they can bring to the table. So as a decathlete, of course, I gravitate towards that kind of idea, right? Where, you know, I may, if I I couldn't have gone, I couldn't have been national champion. I could not have gone and gotten a scholarship if I was a hundred meter runner or a hurdler or a discus thrower or a pole vaulter. But if you make, but if you let me do all of those things, <laughs> then, then I'm good. And leadership for me has been that as well, where I don't feel the need anymore to be great at all these things. I can admit to my team when I make mistakes. I can admit to my team when I'm not good at this thing. I can say to somebody I'm hiring, yeah, I'm just not, I'm not that great. I'm not as strong at this thing. So that's mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why I want you here. Mm-hmm. And once you like can start to do that, but you have to be comfortable in your own skin. You have to be confident. It kind of goes back to the uh, fake it till you make it thing. It's really hard when you're faking it. It's really hard to share where you are faking it. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. It's it's kind of a a thing that works works backwards I think because the more sort of secure you get to be in your own self and your strengths you also can maybe be more comfortable with your with your weaknesses. Um what was there something that that happened or that clicked that got you to the place of saying okay writing and sharing my ideas and maybe developing my own, you know, my own personal brand is important mm-hmm. enough to me that I'm going to reach out and ask for help. How did you make that shift? Probably the the person who helped me make that shift the most was a, a common friend of ours, John Berardi, who recognized that in me. Uh, wrote he wrote. I mean, JB wrote a fantastic his book, Change Maker, which is just especially. I mean, well, especially in the fitness field, is really great. But I. I've given it to a ton of people outside of fitness because I'm just like, this is kind of a soup to nuts marketing and communications book. And mm-hmm. it just happens to be framed around the nutrition and fitness space. Uh, but he was the one who we would have long chats and he was the one that kind of helped me recognize that maybe I had a few ideas here and there. And not, like, I still don't necessarily think that most of them are very good, but um, but I share them nonetheless, because maybe one of them, I throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and maybe one or two of them will will help people. Um, but and JB was the one that put us together because he recognized that um, would need some of that support. So for me, it was it happened through a mentor of mine. Uh, it happened through somebody helping you know me say that. And then it took me even again a little bit longer. Um, it took maybe a year or two after you and I met for me to to really think about how 
I wanted to like show up and, and ultimately it was also for me, it was about, it was a lot about costume champions. Like, look, when you run a charity, when you run a nonprofit, you are in a position where you're asking for people a lot, asking things from people a lot. And Mm -hmm. again, framing it now in a positive way where I'm asking them because I'm asking them to do something for us that will be good for them and for then also society. But ultimately you're asking for people things all the time. So I wanted to have something that I could just give mm-hmm. instead of needing to always ask things for people. For me, it feels mm-hmm. better to be able to give something. And look, I'm not a, I'm not a wealthy man. I, I haven't sold a, I haven't sold a company. I haven't done some of these things, but I've had, I'm like super rich in experience. Like the experiences mm-hmm. I've gotten to have in life, I'm incredibly fortunate that I've gotten to do these things, whether it's, you know, fly in F-16s or, you know, visit, pre- you know, meet with presidents or do all this other stuff. So to, to be able to give the gift to share that with people and and frame those in experience that, that hopefully they, they can, will resonate for them and hopefully they can do something with their life is kind of how I've always been built anyway. So those mm-hmm. were the, the two things that kind of came together to help me I come across the line and say, yeah, I'm going to do this. And yeah. sometimes I'm way ahead of things and sometimes I'm scrambling. <laughs> it's um, there's a couple of great things that I want to point out there. And the first is just the, the mentorship piece and and that JB who was um, John was on the, the podcast earlier, right? Um, yeah. you know, referring to him as a mentor and that he was a coach. And, you know, I, I sometimes think, as I seek to change a bit of this culture around how we view writing and communications, where we think we need to be um, the complete expert. And if I, if you can't communicate uh, fully, successfully, brilliantly on your own, then you just shouldn't do it as opposed to seek out coaching or mentorship or collaboration or support. I kind of wonder if you're experience already as an athlete kind of primed you for that. It, you know, maybe there still was a bit of a personal evolution to see it differently, but you get that fundamentally that, you know, we, this is how we improve and, and grow and do great things is with support of others. But there is also something else that, that you said there that I'd like to underscore, and that's thinking of your, your words and stories as a gift. And I appreciate that so much. Maybe this is another little bit of a reframe that we can offer people because I think, um, you know, again, it maybe depends on where you are in your life and your career. But for a lot of folks, even those I work with um, some people who are very successful and have done incredible things and are still hesitant to talk about themselves Mm -hmm. um, because they see it actually more as taking, taking up space adding to the noise of the world. And this is another message I'd love to share with people to see more that what you have to offer, whether that is your humor, your experiences, your point of view, like just who you are is in fact a gift for people, particularly when it's done from a spirit of generosity. Yeah. Um, Yes, I concur. (laughs) (laughs) um yeah you had a lot of good things in there um i think a few of the things are there's a there's a why would people read you know why would people read me uh well they're either gonna or they're not and you you know if if no one was reading the things that we were putting out there i would have stopped i would have stopped a while ago uh it um yeah that would that's i mean that's an easy one Mm -hmm. they're not reading because they're your friend they will open the first one or two because they're your friend, but past that, they won't. Maybe they'll click it open so they so you so they can feel like you saw that they opened it, um, but they're not going to read it. Uh, they're going to read it if if it's something that's valuable to them. And yeah. there you go. I mean that that like it's kind of it's kind of that simple. Like you can really break it down. Mm-hmm. For me, that's how I break it down. Mm-hmm. I also break it. I also think about there's an ego to it. And I don't say ego in the negative way in this term. I actually mean ego in a positive way, which is whether you, whether for me, who am I to think that I could start an organization or have an idea with, you know, with my sister and build it with my wife to affect kids? Well, who, the, who, who, who the hell am I to think that I could do that? You have to have an ego to be able to do that. And it, and it doesn't have to be a negative ego. Who, who am I to think that? I would have something to say that others would want to listen to. 
And I think a lot of people, that's where they come from. Even the most successful yes. people, they come from a place of, eh, yeah, but like, no, one's really going to want. No, I mean, I like, I'm somebody who that's my preferred, preferred things are people who are just coming from random different places that are like similar or different than me. That's the kind of stuff that I just want to hear what they are thinking. Like, I think what's going on inside of other people's brains is really interesting. I mean, I'm married to a psychologist, so for better or for worse, I have a lot of, of informal psychology training. <laughs> and I mean, that's why she got into psychology to begin with. She was just fascinated with how people thought and why they did things. And that's why she got into psychology. And that's a really, I think it's a really neat thing to, to do. And I mean, high performers have that, like there's this pride and this negativity that's kind of a, a regular thing amongst high performers. And negativity comes from that we can want to win or we can not want to lose. And, you know, we're human. So we, we're risk averse. Like, you know, when the woolly mammoth comes at us, we could see it as somebody who could like be a friend of ours or something that's going to kill us just in case we're going to go ahead and run because it, it might want to kill us. And that's baked into us. So as high performers, you are, you're kind of cursed with a, with a negativity that, that can overtake you if you let it. And as an athlete, plenty of times I did that plenty of times that was a good fuel source was the neg was the desire not to fail versus the, the desire to succeed. A lot of people in this world live in this world. Um, there's some psychologists who really get into this, the art of selling, which is that, you know, you might be bringing a product to somebody. And I think about this classroom champion. So you might be bringing a product to somebody because you think it's going to make things awesome for them or their constituents or whatever it is. But really most people just don't want to get fired. <laughs> really most yeah. people just don't want to fail. They don't, they're not as concerned about being awesome as they are about being lousy. So, you know, yeah. I think if you can be self-aware of that, you can use it to your own personal advantage, but then you could also you know, use it in other ways. And it comes down to yeah. how you share those things. And, you know, when, when you're writing and you're communicating, you're, you're creating things, you're putting things out there. So you're creating in some ways more risk for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if I, if I write and I get, what if people don't like what I said? What if there's pushback on it? What if I sound dumb? What if I screw something up? Um, you know, and, and so we can say, Hey, these things are best done from a, a mindset of experimentation and trying multiple things and seeing what works and, you know, being in more of this kind of creative space of putting things out there and then watching what happens and, and adapting to that and learning from it and growing. But it's true. It can also feel, uh, risky and you, you know, to, it also depends on the content as well. You can get deeper into kind of riskier content, if you want to call it that. You yourself have have spoken openly about struggles with mental health and with some difficult subjects and kind of taken on a bit of that vulnerability to say, here's who I am. Because you could also just, you know, try to say, yeah, like, look at me. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm successful. I'm, mm -hmm. the, you know, this like Olympian and whatnot. And instead you kind of open it up to say, well, here's also what's going on through my mind. Here's what I've been through. Here's who I am. I I always get the, um, do you ever watch Ren and Stimpy back in the day? You probably not. You weren't like, <laughs> I, I do. Yeah. I remember happy, joy, joy, happy, happy. Yeah. That's like, thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can always be happy, happy, joy, joy. Uh, but to think about the, what you said a, a minute ago, which was around the, yeah. Like, I mean, as you do more, you open yourself up to more exposure, uh, more risk. And I mean, you and I had those many conversations around some of the writing sitting on the board of directors, the, you know, U S Olympic and Paralympic committee was, eh, can I say this? Should I say this? We we've had those, you know, we had to make those decisions. Um, I had to, you know, ultimately decide whether that was something that was like worth the risk for me or for the organization, um, in those ways. And I mean, I am glad to be done with that burden for sure is wonderful. You know, it was an experience, amazing experience and learning experience. I, but I am also simultaneously very happy to be moving on and I'm a good, I'm a good example for term limits. Uh, I think there should be term limits in most things. And, uh, and I'm a good example of that one, but also, uh, my wife is doing some really interesting research around cancel culture. Um, and Rhiannon's getting into kind of just this, 
the, like it's the tall poppy syndrome, right? Where like the, the higher you are, then the more likely you are to get cut down. And what that in a, in a world where anyone can get, can get taken down for saying something that is perceived as the wrong thing or in disagreement with others. Uh, she's really, she's doing some really fascinating research around like what that looks like and what's the psychology behind it. And, uh, and really that's like, it really, it, it's for sitting back and, and looking at the obvious things. Yes. The people who are more prominent, they are more likely to get canceled um, or, you know, attacked mm-hmm. by the mob in one way or shape or form. And somebody else who's not in that same position can say the same exact thing, but won't be, won't be. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, they could, they could say the same thing in the same medium you know, in the same place, whether it's on social media or whether it's on a broadcast, um, but they're in a different, you know, a different cultural position. So it's, it's a fascinating thing. So ultimately there is a risk there and you just have to be willing to like, uh, you know, I will say there's absolutely risk there. There's absolutely Mm -hmm. risk there. Like you put something out there, it's there forever. And you, so it's just be thoughtful. I, you know, we, I just try to be really thoughtful ultimately about what, what we're writing about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, That thoughtfulness, um, is at the heart of it. On the other side of that risk, what have some of the benefits been for you? What has it done for you? Yeah, it's been great. I like so many, like so many people who I haven't connected with it a long time. Every now and then I get a response to the newsletter and I didn't even realize they were even on that. They, they were even on the list. So it's helped me reconnect with people, but it's also helped me from a, from a classroom champion standpoint. It has like we we are a leadership driven organization. Like social emotional learning at Classroom Champions means providing kids in schools and, and districts with skills for kids and teachers that are really hard to teach. They are those life skills like setting goals. They are those black box things. Oh, that person works hard. I'm going to hire them because they work hard. Well, that's I mean it's not an, an innate thing. They didn't just like come out of the womb working hard. <laughs> the skill they developed. It's a skill that they developed. It's not a, it's not a a vague trait. And I think that's where, so from the writing perspective, that's kind of what I like to share too. So it's, it's, it allows me to talk to, instead of putting in a box for kids in schools, which is what our team does, it allows me to put it into a box for leaders or for, you know, for the rest of us on a regular basis to take those, the same mentality that classroom champions bringing, but put it into more of a, um, of an, maybe of an adult form. Mm-hmm. through stories, through experiences in those kinds of ways. So it's allowed us to, the organization, it's allowed us to to have a different leadership voice um, and be, you know, be an active leader in the space of, of leadership, which ultimately is how we're trying to help schools in that way. So I think those two things, like mm-hmm. helping connect with folks and ultimately that, it's maybe one or two speaking things, but I also have not been leaning into speaking all that much, um, you know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe I could kind of restrict myself to do four or five a year. So, um, but if I wanted it to be something that I would take that Avenue would be very helpful with that too, I think. Right. Yeah. You, you have the, you have the means to connect with that audience in, in different ways, depending on what your goals are, but that's a really interesting observation of that really kind of pinpoints what's it, what it means to go from maybe subject matter expert or just playing in the sandbox of your own company or organization and moving to thought leadership and evolving that brand and developing deeper connections with the, your potential audience, if they're donors or what have you, that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise because you're taking your message and bringing it to that other audience or in a way that allows you to, to level up. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and honestly, like, I mean, the things it does for me is this, we developed this and I started doing this in COVID. So like maybe it would have been February, March of 2021. So going on two years now. So it would have been about a year of my wife and I being, you know, crammed in together. And it's, it's an outlet for me to share my ideas and thoughts in a different direction. <laughs> I also helped my, it's probably also helped my marriage <laughs> from, a, from a personal standpoint. So. Yeah, yeah that's me. 
Saving saving marriages. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's sure. It's, why is that not on like above the fold on page one? <laughs> well, Steve, this has been amazing. We've we've covered uh, so much. Really, I think about about mindset and about evolving your own way of thinking in order to navigate challenges and take on goals. And we talked specifically about writing and communications a fair bit, but I think. There's a lot, there's a real broad application here. And uh, it's made me think about some, some things in, in new ways and which you always do. Our conversations uh, always do that. Um, before we jump off, I usually ask a, a few little lightning round questions. You cool with that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's do it. <laughs> you have a, a bit of a grimace on your face. They <laughs> won't be too painful. I promise. <laughs> I'm good at um, I'm good at not accepting the premise of a question anyway. So <laughs> um what was your favorite book as a kid or one of them? I was a terrible reader as a kid. I didn't have one. Mm-hmm. What what were you into rather? Um I was in my Legos. I was in the building things. Um I was a very slow reader. Um and I like now I read now I read books by listening to them. So mm-hmm. Uh, like I look back and I probably didn't necessarily wouldn't be able again. I, like I, I could think about the books, some books that I read, but I would not be able to pull one out and say, that was my favorite book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. If, I, if I was forced to in a corner, I'd say clockwork orange. Uh-huh. And what are you listening to any book right now? Um, no, I am going down a deep, uh, a deep podcast trail. Um, these days, uh, Huberman and, uh, masters of scale, um, and actually the Al Franken podcast, um, it's kind of like a good dose of politics with, uh, with a kind of, you know, a former comedic Senator lens to it. Uh-huh. Um, what is something that you want to get better at? Um, our family finances, <laughs> just, just working together, you know, with, you know, with my wife, so like, I think we just, we both have our jobs. We do this thing. So that's, that's one of our goals this year together is to, um, is to, you know, probably find an app for budgeting and, and do those kinds of things better. Like, um, instead of the back end, the napkin thumb in the air kind of thing, which <laughs> I do that really well for the company, for the, for, for our organization. Um, but we've been, but, you know, probably not as well personally. So that's the thing I want to get better at this year. But like, like Homer Simpson getting ready for tax time when he's just like wrapping his, his tax tax materials up basically in homer simpson with hair that's what i look like <laughs> at tax time <laughs> who is someone that inspires you i'm not easily inspired um i would say that there's a teacher that we work with down in phoenix named ella maya uh she inspires me she has a <clears throat> she works in a school that is like pretty, you know, you know, her kids there have a lot of, you know, a lot of uphill challenges in front of them. Um, she, yet she like takes it all in a positive way. And she like, just, like, we had, I got to have breakfast with her when I was down in Phoenix over the holidays. And, um, and she just takes it all in a positive way. And she finds a way to take the things in the school systems that, she likes and run with those and takes the thing, finds a way to take the things in the school system that she, you know, isn't a big fan of and, and not do and doesn't dwell on those things. And I think it's, it's easy for me to look at people who are like in C-suites or other things and say, they inspire me. They, they, those people, those people teach me and they mentor me and they motivate me. Inspiring is a really, for me, it's a really high bar. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'd say, I'd say Ella. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've uh, chatted with Ella before, met her on Zoom right. calls and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, she's just wonderful. So many of the the teachers that, that you work with are, and uh, she's such a great example. And I think probably a great example, of a lot of the mindset stuff and the, the, the reframing and the attitude yeah. kind of things that we've talked about. So that's a yeah. really lovely place to, to end it. Well, thank you again, Steve. This has been absolutely wonderful. I really appreciate your time and and your contribution. 
Thank you for having me on. I'm super honored and super humbled to be amongst some of the other people that you that you bring on this thing that you would think of me. So thank you for having me on. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Storytelling with Heart podcast. Want to turn your thoughts into leadership and your ideas into words that make a difference? Find me and discover more free resources at www.camilledeputter.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to my email newsletter where I share stories, free tools, and other storytelling guidance. And never forget, your story matters. Your story matters.